Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. When the short-term rental market began to surface, it seemed like a godsend for travelers. Airbnb, Verbo, and HomeAway became preferred options for lodging. It makes sense. Who would want to stay in a busy and a more expensive hotel when you can have a house all to yourself? In 2016, the market exploded much faster than officials anticipated, and as a result, they had difficulty in creating rules around the booming industry. And that dash for cash, tensions, also flared between neighbors. Today, we'll revisit that history and check in on what the short-term rental environment is like now, and we'll consider what the future could look like. But first, two decisions handed down by the United States Supreme Court this week are expected to reshape participation in higher education. One ruling announced just a couple of hours ago relates to the Biden administration's plan to cancel student loan debt. The court, in a vote of 6-3, to three, ruled... That's not allowed under federal law. The other decision came yesterday. It gutted race-conscious admissions, also known as affirmative action. Here to discuss what these rulings by the high court mean for universities and students is WPLN's morning news editor, LaTanya Turner. Hey, LaTanya, thanks for being here and welcome back to This is Nashville. Hey, Khalil. Glad to be back here. Okay, so let's get started with the most recent ruling. What happens now with student loan debt forgiveness? Well, you'll recall that President Biden's plan, which created a lot of excitement last August, would have given up to $20,000 in loan forgiveness for students who received Pell Grants. Everybody else would have been eligible for up to $10,000 in debt relief, depending on the household income. Um, It could have meant tens of millions of people would have benefited from this. Also, student loan payments, you'll recall, were paused because of the COVID pandemic. Mm -hmm. So now people will have to resume making payments by October on student loans and make arrangements to either pay or defer their total student loan debt. Okay. Our education reporter, Alexis Marshall, that's not me, it's our wonderful (laughs) Alexis Marshall, has been talking to students about these legal cases. And here's Haley Roy. She recently graduated from Vanderbilt with a master's in public and educational policy. Sad, disappointed, and not solely just for myself, but for other people who have also higher debt with like inflation and trying to find jobs and getting a good salary and trying to maintain like staying afloat in our society. I think when you add on student loans, it kind of just makes it even harder for people to get out of that cycle, maybe of poverty, that cycle of struggle, especially someone who doesn't come from like generational wealth or has to, you know, actually figure out like where the money's going to come from to pay for all of these things. So her comment about generational wealth is something you hear a lot and and, and disparities related to these cases. And it's key because both of these cases really come down to racial disparities in higher education. Can you break that down for us? Sure. Um, Both of these cases focus on policies that were intended to address historic racial disparities in access to higher education. 
So affirmative action opens up access and opportunities that historically excluded black and brown students. And these students are also the ones who tend to take on more debt to afford college. That goes back to the generational wealth comment we just heard Haley talk about. Now, advocates are really worried that these decisions will throw up some more roadblocks to racial equality and racial progress in higher education especially the one related to affirmative action. That one in particular is being criticized for focusing only on race in admissions and not addressing other factors that give privilege to some students, like legacy admissions, uh, being a standout athlete and the sports team wants you, or being a very talented musician and the band program wants you. Now, let's talk about that ruling on affirmative action. It came down yesterday, and some of our guests said on this show last week a lot of people in higher education were expecting the court to rule against race-conscious admissions, so it's no surprise. But what has the reaction been? Well, that's right, Khalil. It, it wasn't really a surprise, but still devastating, as one um, college professor told me. But it's a new day, and the dust is starting to settle a bit and as we continue to monitor the reaction to the Supreme Court decision, and as people get through this huge volume uh, opinion, it's 230-something pages. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the reaction yesterday, you know people hadn't read it. Yeah. Um, they've read through it now. Some of the analysis we're hearing is pretty interesting, and it's a little bit less reactive and more proactive. Um, people are turning to what can be managed or changed to still achieve racial equality and diversity on campuses. Dr. Kelly Slay, who you met, was one of the guests yes. who was on last week. Uh, she's a Vanderbilt professor who researches the implications of race-conscious admissions. Here's part of what she told WPLN News yesterday after the decision was released. One of the things that the opinion says is nothing in this opinion should be construed as prohibiting universities from considering an applicant's discussion of how race affected his or her life. So applicants can still talk about their race in the material. This, rule, this opinion does not appear to prohibit institutions from considering race in recruitment, considering race in financial aid, and other aspects. But that doesn't mean that a college or university might not decide to go further than what the ruling suggests. I hope that they wouldn't do that because, you know, we all know the value of diversity and we all know that race-conscious practices are the most effective tool that we have in creating uh, a racially diverse class. So that gives a bit of hope. Um, but honestly, it's not going to be easy or quick. It's going to take some time for universities and student applicants to figure all this out. And some, no doubt, will just say it's too much effort or risky to even try to uh, be racially diverse or culturally uh, competent. But the hope is that schools will think creatively and innovatively about how to achieve diversity and put the effort in. Now, here in Tennessee, how and where will this admissions decision have the most impact? Well, let me back up first and just remind you that these decisions have to do, or the affirmative action decision has to do directly with two schools, Harvard and the University of North Carolina. Those were the schools involved in the cases. Um, but we're learning that other universities are already looking at their admissions practices. They want to see if there's any similarities to those cases that might put them at risk and how to avoid challenges. Um, but to your question, where this is most likely to be a challenge in Tennessee, the so-called flagship or, or highly ranked schools like Vanderbilt 
UT, uh, Belmont, according to Dr. Slade, the schools with really competitive acceptance rates and often those with large endowments, they can be more selective about who they accept because of demand. So administrators at that schools could be making changes. What about the students? How is this going to affect them? Well, remember, affirmative action is really about choice and accessibility for students who have been excluded historically from some institutions. I'm being like a teacher. I'm reminding you yeah, <laughs> of yes. what I said earlier. I appreciate it. Um, many are looking at what happened in states like California and Michigan after affirmative action bans there a few years ago. It shifted where students apply to colleges and where they chose to enroll. So more students chose regional state schools and community colleges after the ban. HBCUs could also see an increase in applications, although there's already been increasing applications at those here like TSU, Fisk, and Meharry. We've been reporting on that. So students might start going to schools where they believe the chances are greater for their application to be accepted, where there is already more diversity and racial equity, or where they can find a community of students who look like them, who have similar cultural experiences. Okay, so saying that, how could that really affect campus life? Um, A decline in racial diversity is the obvious expectation. Fewer black and brown students on these campuses. Um, But as important when it comes to higher ed, the campus climate or the environment could change. Students of color who are there might feel less comfortable, welcomed, or understood um, when it comes to racial stereotyping and experiences. All right. All of those possibilities coupled with no relief from massive student loan debt. What are some of the potential implications? Um, It's possible students could choose to forego college altogether. I mean, Haley pointed out to me that her generation is rethinking whether college costs are worth what they have to pay for what they get. Um, But there is a concerted effort here in Tennessee to direct more students to higher education, to help students pay for college through programs like the lottery, which funds scholarships and free community college. These have made some impact. And last year, the college going rate actually took its biggest jump since 2015 here in Tennessee. Their enrollment growth is especially strong among the state's black students. LaTanya Turner is the morning show news editor here at WPLN. LaTanya, thank you so much for being with us today. Really appreciate it. You're welcome. Glad to be here. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll recap the twists and turns of the short-term rental saga in Nashville and learn how we got to where we are now. Do you have short-term rentals in your neighborhood? How do you feel about them? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Kaliole Colonna, and this is Nashville. We are in the height of the tourist season in our city. You know what that means. People from all over the country will be coming to Nashville, and some of them, tens of thousands really, will be staying at places other than hotels. That's where short-term rentals like Airbnb and Verbo come in. For years, folks have stayed in the houses, townhomes, and apartments made available by homeowners. But some would say the early years of short-term rentals here in Nashville were chaotic to say the least. So what has the experience been like for folks who own short-term rentals and for folks who live next to them? My next guest knows what it's like 
to run a short-term rental. Beth Cummings has been renting out of a tiny home for about two years as an Airbnb operator in West End. Beth, thanks for joining me and welcome to This is Nashville. You're welcome. Thank you. Really appreciate you being here. So tell me, how did you come to be an owner of an Airbnb property? Well, my husband Bob and I um, were in the video production business for well over 30 years. And when we moved on from that, uh, luckily we had uh, wonderful friends who were home builders. And we had bought a lot. We live in the Hillsborough West End area. And we had bought a lot next door years and years ago. And uh, Steve and Bob were standing out there going, you know, we could build a tiny house. And I'm like, no way. Hmm. I really was not immediately enthused with the idea. I, I felt it might be intrusive. And I was concerned about the neighborhood because we were so dug in to the neighborhood. And as we know, the opinion of Airbnb has not always been positive. As it turns out, it has been a wonderful adventure. Okay, you said that the opinion of Airbnbs hasn't always been positive. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, mm -hmm. at that point in time, what were your opinions on short-term rentals? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, we had stayed in Airbnbs and were satisfied. I um, I just didn't like the idea of the parties and the chaos. And um, I, as we were building it, when people would walk by, I would be just a little bit hesitant mm. to say this is going to be an Airbnb. Mm -hmm. But because it's so cute and it it really adds to the property and the neighborhood, it has turned out well. So my opinion has been changed also by the model, the business model of Airbnb. We have been very satisfied uh, as a host and and uh, our guests are satisfied. It's really it's really been a win-win. It's a, it's really a mom and pop business. Mm -hmm. And our previous business life, I think um, in any business, you're going to have risk. And so there is risk, but uh, the payoff has been has been good. Tell me a little bit more about the experience when you got started. Once your neighbors found out mm -hmm. this tiny home on your property is an Airbnb, how mm -hmm. did they react? We have a lot of, we're a walking neighborhood and a lot of dogs, a lot of walkers, a lot of runners. And everyone that would stop by and say, oh, what are you building? You know, what's going on? And we would say it's the guest house or sometimes an Airbnb. And they were really not negative about it. Mm -hmm. And I do think because it's so small, it's 400 square feet. It's small. It 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 marries up to our house. Um, there's a feeling of, I mean, it was really a labor of love. We had a ball building it with friends and family and, and these great builders. So um, the I, I do not remember one negative response. Now, earlier you said it's been a win-win. Mm -hmm. I'm sure there's been some stresses too. Oh, oh, yeah. But as far as our guests are concerned, I think when they walk in there, they realize, I mean, there's even a little book that says this is how we built it and this, these are the mm. people that built it. And I think that they... Um, they respect that, and it has a, a homey feel, and we're right next door. I really, really believe in that concept as opposed to the, you know, big, there are some big Airbnbs right next door to us. Okay. As a matter of fact, the silver lining of that happening was that we were able to get a new setback from the street, and we're actually able to build it. 
because it's basically on a postage stamp. It's a oh. small lot. Okay. Now, even back before people like Beth got started in short-term, the short-term rental business, there were very few rules and regulations in place. That's when city officials took up the job of regulating the new industry. My next guest led that charge. Berkeley Allen is an at-large Metro Council member and former guest of the show. Council member Allen, welcome back to This is Nashville. Thank you. Great to be here. Thanks for being here. So when did you come to recognize the lack of rules for the short-term rental market was becoming a problem? Um, I had constituents who owned a historic bed and breakfast, which is a different designation and had a very strict set of rules. They had to have a commercial kitchen and sprinklers and, and just a whole lot of um, requirements because they were they were sort of the the, the pioneers in that. And they sat down with me and said, either we shouldn't have these rules or there need to be rules for this this new phenomenon that we're seeing called Airbnb. Um, and at that point, there were maybe 200 of them. Uh, so I started working with the, the council office to look at what existed in other cities, um, just in terms of legislation. And there really wasn't that much to go by. So we were, we were definitely on the cutting edge, which is always... Um, a risky place to be just in terms of knowing whether you're going to get it right the first time or not. And um, we sort of started with what had been required for um, the historic bed and breakfast. And uh, and then also looked at some other cities that seemed to have rules that, that seemed like they would make sense for us. Austin was, was the one we drew from the most heavily and ultimately decided um, that we needed rules. Um, and according to the code administrator at that time, um, because our our current legislation didn't say that you couldn't uh, rent your house for a short period of time, he couldn't rule that people were in violation of anything. So we um, we realized that we had to to kind of start from scratch and and put in place the need for uh, for having a permit and some safety requirements and just ensuring that people. Uh, went by the noise ordinances and the trash ordinances. And then the, the trickiest thing and probably something I'm not sure we got right. Um, we started with a maximum of three bedrooms and six guests because that's what the historic bed and breakfast could do. And and um, interestingly, the only people who were really engaged in the conversation at that time were um, were the, the 200 people that were operating them already. And they, they you know questioned, why do we need any rules or why are there limits or why not 20? Some cities let you have 20. So ultimately, we went with um, a maximum of 12 people. Um, and I think, as Beth has pointed out, the little bitty ones have, I think, never caused much of a problem. It's it's the the 12 where there's a party happening, you know, instead of we were envisioning corporate retreats and family reunions. So um, that that's probably where we first realized, OK, this was good. We've put rules in place. Um, we're requiring them to pay the hotel motel tax like the hotels and the motels do. Um, we think we've leveled the playing ground now, um, and and let's let's see how this plays out. Um, well, talk to me about this. I mean, you mentioned uh, initially it was two hundred folks involved, and but now right. we've got nearly seven thousand regulated yeah, short term rentals in Nashville. There's a lot exactly. of perspectives to consider. Tell me, how has it gone trying to find a solution for everyone? For everyone, I think you know. Well, first of all, we had the the interesting interaction of sort of the property rights people saying, you know, why why can't I do anything I want with my property? Um, engaging with state officials who at one point toyed with regulating it strictly at the state level. 
Um, and I spent a lot of time up at the, the state courthouse, uh, state house at that time, just emphasizing how unique it is to each city that Sevierville and Gatlinburg and, and Nashville are different. And, you know, other smaller cities would have totally different needs. So um, we, what we thought made sense at the beginning, I think we, the council has sort of, you know, as, as it's sort of like I say, you know, letting your puppy sit on the couch and then it grows up to be a big Dane, great Dane. And you realize that <laughs> what you thought was okay. It isn't quite as, uh, isn't quite as good a fit when things get bigger. Mm. So we, I mean, we, you know, we started with, uh, you have to have a permit and we, we immediately recognized that there needed to be limits. So there could be no more than 3% in a census tract, uh, thinking that that would, then that would minimize the impact on the neighborhood. But we, toyed with, but uh, ultimately people were not in favor of a limit by block. And maybe if we'd started with, again, a, a lower number of people and only one per block, it could have been an invisible thing in the neighborhood that that just allowed people to earn extra money on their homes. But what we discovered was some really popular areas, the entire street, you know, would, would become short-term rental. And that, that totally changes the character and was absolutely not what we had had foreseen as a possibility. So as we began to see um, implications of, of things that, that um, just unintended consequences, adjustments started to be made and um, different council members weighed in with different, different types of, uh, of tightenings of those rules. So now we've, uh, the only way you can get a short-term rental permit in a residential area is to is to live in that home as your as your permanent primary residence. Mm -hmm. And I think that's been a good move. So we sort of know that there aren't going to be any more investor type short-term rentals coming into the neighborhoods. And I, and I think that that we you know we reached a tipping point where that was a, a totally appropriate thing to do. All right. And interestingly, I'll just say one thing and then let you ask the next question. When we when we then restricted it on those, then the movement was to the multifamily, which hadn't really been a problem. But once it got pushed to there, then we sort of realized we needed restrictions there and in apartments as well. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Kaliole Colonna. We're talking this hour about the history and impact of short-term rental properties in our city. What do you think of them? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Now, my next guest is responsible for the enforcement of rules and codes for short-term rental properties. Benel McBroom is the Metro Code's STRP chief. Benel, thanks for being here today. Thank you for having me. So tell me, what type of violations does your department look for? Well, there are a myriad of violations. First off, the permits are very specific as to what um, the uh, property is permitted for. Uh, for instance, the um, number of bedrooms is specific and the number of occupants is based upon the permitted number of bedrooms. It's one in six, one, one bedroom, six occupants, um, two and eight, three and 10, four and 12, and that's the maximum in Nashville, four bedrooms and 12 occupants. Um, so we um, have had um, uh, uh, opportunity to go um, to enforce excess, uh, advertising excess uh, bedrooms, excess occupancy. And of course, initially it was um, operating without a permit, which is very critical because if uh, if we don't have a permit, then you have not had your property inspected to have the proper um, fire alarm uh, equipment, and that is just crucial. But uh, currently, the problem that we're facing most is fraudulently obtained 
owner-occupied permits. Mm. And it's, uh, they're very difficult cases okay. to prosecute, and they uh, are very time-consuming. Can you give me a sense of the volume of complaints, like on a weekly and monthly basis? I can give you some um, statistics from the hotline. Now, we have a 24-hour hotline that's uh, run by Metro's compliance contractor, which is Gronica's host compliance. And in the past 30 days, we've had 135 calls on that hotline. And that those calls can either be actual phone calls or they can be um, uh, texts that are submitted or actually emails. And um, it, since the inception of the hotline, which was October 17th of 20, let's see, excuse me, July 10th, no, October 17th, of 2017, it um, we have had a total of 8,343 wow. calls. All right. That's a lot of calls. Look, I have an Airbnb, a multi-room Airbnb across the street from my place where I stay because I see, you know, every weekend four or five cars pulling up and about, you know, eight to ten people enjoying themselves. So far, no wild parties, but... I'm curious, like, what are some of the more memorable accusations or actual violations that you've come across over the years? Well, we have had um, some incidents, uh, although I'll have to say for the number of uh, short-term rentals uh, in Nashville, it, the it's just a small, small fraction. But we've had some incidents that actually the short-term rental um, ordinance is not addressed. We've had um, some uh some shootings, we've had some robberies, we've had some break-ins, we've had various things like that, but those are not addressed by the short-term uh, rental ordinance. Those are uh, strictly police matters. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, so basically, as I explained earlier, what we go after is mostly just violations of uh, what they're permitted to do or if they do not have a permit and currently now if they've obtained a permit fraudulently. So should my neighbors throw a wild party and refuse or forget to invite me, I don't call you, I call the police? No, just go on over. <laughs> they, that, <laughs> that is the answer right there. Now, Beth, I wonder about your reaction to examples like this. What impact do bad actors have on the industry? Well, um, I think we all saw a lot of that at the beginning of, Air well, well, maybe not at the very beginning of Airbnb, but what happened soon after, uh, we actually have next door to us four brick structures, and with each within each one are two townhomes. And they are what you're talking about. They're a lot of bachelorettes, a lot of parties. I've only had to call the cops once, I'll have to say. But um, that, it's like polar opposites. Our little place, two people, no pets, no parties, mm. and right here we have this going on. There is a lot of traffic. I have found people to be considerate, by and large, and so, but do I want something like that? Do I want to have any part of something like like that kind of Airbnb situation? Absolutely not. And then we got a tweet at This Is Nashville, quote, I live in a neighborhood surrounded by short-term rental properties, constant noise, overflowing trash cans, cars parked everywhere. Now there are whole apartment buildings being built, advertised, and sold as short-term rental properties, inflating property values and pricing out locals. Laws, codes, complaints, all ignored by Metro, end quote. What's your, re your reaction to hearing to this, Bunnell? Well, 
first off, the uh, noise ordinance is enforced by the Metro Police. We do not have the authority nor the training uh, to uh, address those. Now, the ordinance um, states that we are, when we receive a complaint, we are to notify the property owner, and if there is a property manager, we also uh, notify them uh, through either a uh, notice of violation in the mail or um, by an email. Um, but as far as the enforcement of the noise, that has to be done by the police because it has to be addressed at the time that it occurs. The, the mayor currently has a um, task group that is working on the noise situation, and not just for short-term rentals, but citywide for various reasons. But short-term rentals is definitely a part of that. And um, they're looking at some new and innovative ways to, um, uh, to address the problem. Um, but that's still a work in progress. You know, Councilmember Allen, as we move forward into the future, what do you want people to be aware of with short-term rentals in our city? Um, I think they, they, I want them to be aware that there is this hotline and, and that they have the capability. And Bunnell, you can connect me on, correct me on this one, that um, in theory, they, they can call the manager in real time and get the manager to show up and, and make the noise stop. And in theory, we have um, a three strikes and you're out policy where we should be able to revoke the permit for the for the bad actors. Um, that has been more difficult than it ought to be. And we continue to work on on ways to um, to make our enforcement more effective. And, and we know we've got a long way to go. We have um, now restricted the permits that can be um, can be issued to multifamily apartment units. So unless it's a it's a commercial um, piece of property that's not zoned RM, which is our designation for apartments, um, those are not getting any new short-term rental permits. So again, as I said, we sort of, you know, as, as we discovered that this was um, that we too much of a good thing and we'd reached the too much point, then we, we've limited where those new permits can go. So at this point, it's only in commercial um, or um, office residential or mixed use areas where new permits can be issued. And, and we are we are well aware that enforcement um, still has a lot of room for improvement. Uh, the, te- the state has tied our hands in a couple of places and we're, we are working hard on um, coming up with effective ways to get around that and all suggestions are welcome. And um, I think that some other other things and tools we may add will will help with that. In the we future. have an opportunity for a suggestion right here. You know, Beth, a lot of people yep. have different opinions when it comes to these rules established. Right. What do you think about the rules as they stand now? I like it. I mean, I, I think the ideal situation is our situation. Mm-hmm. And what Bernal is talking about uh, or what you're the person who called in or tweet, whatever, tweeted in, texted in, um, that's. Airbnb hell. <laughs> I mean, mm. So, uh, so the rules and regulations. I mean, it's like any industry. It's growing. It's changing. It's hopefully getting better and more accommodating. And the main thing is, we don't want to take away from these neighborhoods. We don't want to. Um, uh, the, the, we have some wonderful neighborhoods in Nashville, and we do not want. I do not want Airbnb to uh, to be a detriment to. To anyone. So the rules and regulations need to be in place. That is Airbnb operator Beth Cummings. She was joined by Benel McBroom, the chief enforcement officer over at short of short term rentals here at Metro Codes and at large Metro Council member Berkeley Allen. Thank you all for being with us today. 
We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll look at how short-term rentals are affecting neighborhoods and what the future holds. Do you live near a short-term rental? Tell us how you feel about it and tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Colona, and this is Nashville. The explosion of short-term rentals like Airbnb and Verbo has brought money to our city in the form of tourist dollars, but it's also caused tensions between neighbors. Before the break, we heard about the history of the codes and regulations regarding short-term rental properties in the city. Now let's look at the neighborhood effect. I'd like to introduce Brenda Morrow, who is the executive director of Organized Neighbors of Edge Hill and former guest of the show. Brenda, thanks for being here and welcome back to This is Nashville. Thank you, guys. Thank you all so much for having me. And I really enjoyed listening to all the uh, previous guests and the insight and the information that they have brought. Um, I don't know uh, how we're going to tackle some of the issues, but uh, I think having informed people all sitting at the table and coming up with ideas will help. Yeah, that's why we have you on the show. Now, you have short-term rentals through services like Airbnb in your neighborhood. Tell me, what have you noticed? What I have noticed uh, uh, mostly is the fact that you guys, uh, just to be here on a Friday in a community and watching the people uh, coming down 12th and down through um, and down through uh, division and coming up this way with their suitcases, rolling them, you know, looking for the place they're supposed to be. It's, it's, it's a sight, but every weekend, uh, neighbors, you know, residents here in the community, they see that. And we know what it's about. We know that somebody has leased an Airbnb and they're headed to their, their place for the weekend. Uh, what we have noticed for the most part is uh, parties, you know, uh, residents. We have what we call the uh, resident association meetings and uh, different gatherings of residents. And it's always the same, that people are concerned, they're upset about the loud parties, they're upset about the noises, upset about the arguments that go on once people get a lot of that fire water in them. Then they want to argue about the least little thing. And uh, it's, it's just, we don't know how to deal with it other than to call the police. Uh, but to go backwards a little bit, you guys, when I first started hearing about the Airbnbs, mm-hmm. um, me, myself, I thought it was an awesome idea. Knowing how fast Nashville is growing, knowing how there's not enough hotel space, Uh, in Nashville for all the tourists that come in and out of Nashville. I thought that having a setting like that where people could just feel like they're at home, cook their own meals, you know, go and come as they please without interacting with other people. I thought that was so, that was uh, a great idea. But uh, as it has progressed over the years, over the months, I mean, it's become a negative. not only with the noise, the music, uh, the arguments, the fights, 
but also with the uh, the safety issue. I would I would hate to know you know to actually be a person that would go into a city and rent an Airbnb and then have to face the fact that I've been uh, uh, involved with a, a, a criminal element that comes and say, well, we know you're only here for the weekend. That I'm figuring that's what their thoughts are. So, you know, what have you got? We're finna take it. That just, that just breaks my heart. Um, when we have over here uh, in Edge Hill, there's a group called uh, Evna the Edgehill Village Neighbor Associ Neighbors Association. Mm -hmm. And they have like a page where when stuff go on in and uh, you know around their neighbors' homes and stuff like that, uh, they can post it, you know, and on their on their email site and say, you know, it just breaks my heart to see somebody post something to say, this is what happened at my neighbor's house. Do you recognize these people? Mm -hmm. You know, and then we have monthly meetings with the police officers here in the uh, uh, Edge Hill community Ooh. from Midtown. What does Metro Police say? Updates. And they come and they give updates and they will actually show clips you know, a uh, stuff and say, do you recognize these people? It's just hard. It's just hard to know that people are coming into uh, to the community to do crime, specifically against folks that are here on a vacation, trying yeah. to spend time as a tourist. Okay. The police. Um, I understand that. I have to move on to my next guest. It's good to get that perspective of some of the detriments of Airbnbs and short term rental properties in particular neighborhoods. But my guest next guest has a little bit of a different view. She is a short term rental operator and advocate. Barbara Culligan is the president of the Nashville area short term rental association and an Airbnb ambassador. Barb, thank you so much for joining the show. Hi, and thank you for, for inviting me. Um, I just want to say, I'm a member of the Edge Hill Neighborhood Association. I live in Edge Hill. Okay. So um, I, my point is, and what I want to stress, is that most Airbnb hosts are just, and I use, I use Airbnb interchangeably for short-term rental. I probably shouldn't. But um, we care deeply about our neighborhoods. We're part of the weave of the community. We're part of, you know, I have a church here. I have, you know, I, I you know, I... Uh, volunteer, and I, I'm a part of my community. I know my neighbors well, and I care about my neighborhood. My background is in city planning, so I believe in neighborhoods. So tell me, how does renting out your home, how does it benefit you? Well, we bought our home. Um, our home was built with um, a bedroom that is a studio bedroom, a studio kind of apartment, and has its own entrance. We bought that house knowing we would short-term rental it and thinking we would put that money you know, away for retirement. And I think that most hosts in Nashville, they use that money for their families. They use that money to pay their mortgage. They use that money maybe to take a vacation with their children. Uh, I think the problem comes when you have a lot of out-of-state investors and you have a lot of out-of-state management companies and they don't care about Nashville. You know, I dare, I care deeply about not only Nashville, but also about my guests and also about my guests knowing that, you know, having a great experience here. Um, I, I love the fact that my house shows up in so many people's happy memories and, you know, in, in family celebrations. 
So I think that's the problem that we have, that there are out-of-state investors and out-of-state property managers who don't care about Nashville. Now, I understand that you had some issues with the codes department regarding your permit. And early in the show, we heard about how officials <laughs> had to catch up to the industry as it exploded here in town. Can you briefly yes, explain what, how that, what played out on your property? Well, let's just say I'm a private person. I was not in the political sphere um, until this happened. Um, we got our permit. We bought this house with the intention of short-term rentaling it. It was more expensive than other houses, other comparable houses. Um, and so um, we bought it and then got the permit. And then months later, Code said, we have reinterpreted a current law. And because of that, we're taking away your permit. And so I sued the city of Nashville. I had a great lawyer, you know, Jamie Holland, and um, and we put the city of Nashville in contempt of court. The first time a municipality had been put in contempt of court in all of the state's history, mm-hmm. because Nashville knew what the law was. The judge said Nashville knew what the law was. Um, agreed to something and then did the direct opposite a day later. Now, some people have had issues with the influx of short-term rental properties and the codes around them. I'd like to introduce my next guest. Logan Key is a neighborhood preservation advocate who has been critical of short-term rentals. Logan, thanks for being here. Thank you, Khalil. I'm glad to be here. Now, pardon me, you live in one of the more popular areas for rentals. How has that affected your neighborhood? Well, it it affected our neighborhood originally under the under the first ordinance that Councilwoman Allen was referring to. Uh, there, uh, there it, it was legal under the first ordinance uh, to actually convert whole homes into vacation rentals, and so that's not the that's not the set of dynamics that that Barb does. Uh, but it was very popular, uh, and and about that time in in two thousand fifteen two thousand sixteen. There was there was an in, there was a frenzy of vacation rental activity uh, brought on by a number of things. First of all, with, with websites like Airbnb and HomeAway, it was much easier to market these properties if you owned one. Uh, Nashville was an increasingly popular tourist destination, and there was money to be made in buying properties and converting them to vacation rentals. And so that's uh, that's something that I observed in my neighborhood because it happens to be within about a mile or two radius of downtown, which was and is an increasingly popular tourist destination. Now, how do, how do your neighbors feel about them? Well, uh, the people who live there uh, don't take very kindly uh, or didn't take very kindly to, to seeing the conversion of whole homes into vacation rentals, uh, because uh, in my opinion, and in the opinion of a lot of like-minded people, uh, we wanted to we wanted to conserve a neighborhood fabric. Uh, we wanted to conserve uh, an environment where uh, there are, are people living, people playing. Uh, our kids are in, in public schools. There are houses of worship, all the things that we think of as a neighborhood. And those things were being eroded with the conversion of an entire property into a vacation rental. What does this tell you about Nashville and what's being prioritized? Well, at the time, I, I'm willing to give folks like Councilwoman Allen the benefit of the doubt. And at the time, I think... Uh, th- there was uh, there was some thought that this ordinance was going to somehow protect and conserve neighborhoods. I think that thinking was badly flawed. 
Uh, and that is why we, uh, th those of us who coalesced around the group that I was part of, advocated very strongly to, to use the zoning code strategically and prevail upon the council to get the whole home rentals out of the neighborhood. At the time, it looked an awful lot like we were uh, attempting to help uh, alleviate some sort of perceived shortage of hotel rooms on the backs of urban neighborhoods. And I have, I had, and I continue to have a major problem with that mindset. Now, Brenda, what's your reaction to what Logan said about the city's priorities? Brenda, are you still with us? I'm listening, but I had to put myself off of mute because I had muted myself. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, I, uh, what's my reaction to what he has said? I mean, it, it all falls into place, you know, because when things uh, come out in the beginning, we think it's a good thing. Like I said in the beginning, I thought that Airbnb thing was a good thing because of the growth of Nashville and uh, helping to alleviate uh, people having to uh, crowd into hotels, going to hotels where they could have a family setting. But uh, uh, as things progress, you know, it's like a light bulb goes off in your head and says, ah. Oh, Okay, so that's where it was. <laughs> so yeah, I I I I'm pretty much I'm, I very much confirm. I mean, uh, agree with what he's saying. You know. Now, Barb, you. I'm listening. I'm hearing, and it's a learning process. I'm so glad for this this interview today. I think it's a learning process for everybody involved and our listeners as well. I mean, because Barb, you advocate for the short term rental properties and you've seen firsthand how they help people, not just yourself, but the folks in the organization that you're president of. What approach do you think the city should take as we move forward? I think the city should focus on its citizens and its citizens need help and say and say, you know, making that mortgage payment every month. I mean, housing prices are increasing. I am I'm starting a podcast called um, Women of Airbnb because I have seen so many women's lives, women who are often in transition, you know, meaning divorce or their kids have left, you know, home. And they've often left the workforce early on when their kids were young and they can't get back into the workforce. And what Airbnb and other platforms like you know, like VRBO, what they do is they allow a person to monetize their biggest financial asset, which is often their house. And it transforms lives. It really does. Now, now Logan, looking at the city and where we're at now, is there a place where people can come to a compromise and make an understanding where people continue can have the opportunities that Barb has mentioned, but the neighborhood, as you and Brenda would like, can continue to be preserved? Well, I would argue that we uh, we helped ourselves collectively as a city achieve something of a compromise in 2018. Uh, Councilwoman Allen mentioned uh, earlier that uh, the original ordinance uh, was was allowed to uh, set aside a certain percentage of homes in in single family and duplex neighborhoods to be converted to whole home short term rentals. 
Uh, that was a very flawed piece of the original ordinance that was uh, reformed through a series of, of fairly uh, toxic negotiations in spite of aggressive lobbying through the short-term rental industry, uh, which hired the most expensive lobbyist, uh, probably the most expensive lobbyist in Nashville. And, and we, as ordinary citizens, prevailed upon the council, and Councilwoman Allen actually voted against that ordinance to get the short-term rentals that are whole homes out of the neighborhood. And so uh, I would argue that was a compromise because what that didn't do is that didn't touch the set of circumstances that Barb is talking about, where she is able to short-term rent her home out uh, on her property. What it did do is uh, hopefully over time restore uh, the housing stock in neighborhoods to residents who are living there, who call it their home, and and hopefully uh, peeled back the erosion that was beginning to take place as we began to see the erosion of the neighborhood through the conversion of whole homes into vacation rentals. Yes, yeah, so no question for you. Do you like where the codes and rules are at as they stand today? I like where the zoning code is with respect to not allowing the whole homes uh, to get short-term rental permits in in the residential uh, single family and duplex zones. I think that is wise legislation. I think the part that uh, Nashville is and will continue to struggle with is what Brunel mentioned earlier, which is fraudulently obtained uh, owner-occupied permits, because uh, it's, it's uh, I suspect, fairly easy for property owners to allege that they live in a home, uh, call it some sort of, you know, sham residence, and mm-hmm. then get an owner-occupied permit and begin to rent that thing out through Airbnb. And I, and that's not what Barbara's doing. I don't think that's what good, quote-unquote, good hosts are doing. But I think the enforcement of that is going to have to be uh, aggressively uh, handled over the next uh, several years. Barb, real quick, we got about 25 seconds. What can we do to find some consensus as we move into the future? I think what we need to do is focus on neighborhoods and focus on those bad property managers who are violating noise standards, who are violating, you know, neighborhood social norms. You know, like there's no laws that say, oh, you can't have, you can't be drunk, but mm-hmm. that's obviously a good, not a good idea for the neighborhood, you know, for a lot of drunk people to be walking on the streets. Yep. So yep. not violating social norms. I mean, I, I think getting rid of the bad operators. Okay, that's what we're going to do. That's Barb Culligan, president of the Nashville Area Short-Term Rental Association. She was joined by Brenda Morrow, executive director of Organized Neighbors of Edge Hill, and Logan Key, a neighborhood preservation advocate. Thanks to you all for being a part of this conversation. And thanks to you for tuning in this hour. This is Nashville as a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Today's episode was produced by Tony Gonzalez. Our senior producer is Steve Harouche. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tudhope. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Amir Blade. You can listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. And the conversation, it never ends here. You can tweet us at thisisnashville, find us on Instagram, and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Ekelona. We'll see you Monday, everybody, and be good to each other.